uh, you know, we've been preaching uh, in the book of Luke and looking at that and the last, since Christmas or so, uh, we've been looking at different encounters Jesus has with individuals in the book. And today we see Jesus encounter uh, an evil person and what that's like. Uh, let's pray. Oh, Father, uh, Lord, we don't like to even acknowledge the existence of evil in the world because uh, it's scary. Uh, Lord, and um, uh, if we do, we, we do so with great fear and trembling, not realizing that you uh, have overcome evil. And so, Lord, I pray that no matter where we come at with this subject, uh, Lord, we would submit to you. I pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, Goodwill hunting. Anybody seen it? Uh, all-time favorite for me. Uh, if you've not seen it, you really should. I, so, sometimes I mention movies that I really don't, you don't, you shouldn't watch, um, either because they're bad or just inappropriate. But I talk about them anyways. Uh, but this one you really should watch. Uh, the two main characters are, are Matt Damon and Robin Williams. And uh, Matt Damon uh, plays a rough guy. Uh, he's a little rough around the edges. Uh, he's a janitor at MIT. Uh, he chums around with his old High school buddies, drinks a lot of beer, and uh, he's from a tough neighborhood, a tough neighborhood in Boston. And one night when he's working uh, the graveyard shift at MIT, he sees on the chalkboard a really complicated math problem, uh, and he solves it because he is this underground genius. He's this self-taught genius. And so when the class and the professor shows up the next morning, uh, they see that this complex math problem has been solved. They're wondering, who in the world did this? This is at MIT. And eventually, over time, it gets found out. It gets found out that the janitor is the one who solved it. And so now Matt Damon, he gets put on this fast track. He enters into school. The problem with this isn't his smarts. The problem with this is his life outside of the classroom. Because he's a little rough around the edges, he ends up uh, getting in a brawl and he gets arrested. When he gets arrested, he gets uh, court ordered to see a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist is played by none other than Robin Williams. And when Robin Williams begins to see Matt Damon, he begins to be pretty confrontational with him. He confronts him about his violence streak. He confronts him how he self-sabotages relationships when they begin to become intimate so he self-sabotages them because he doesn't want to get rejected. And what makes a movie so beautiful is how Williams mixes this confrontation with his empathy. And the empathy that Williams shows to Damon is something that they hold in common. See, they're both victims of child abuse. And when Matt Damon's life begins to turn around, it's because Robin Williams' character, the psychiatrist, has brought this out into the open. And by the end of the movie, what you see in Matt Damon's character is a changed person. Now, I don't know about you, but I am a sucker for these kinds of stories. Whether it's movies or it's real life, these kind of transformation stories give me a shot of hope in a dark world. But for all of our affection, for change in people's lives, it's really important for us to distinguish between improvement and transformation. See, improvement is just behavioral. It's external change. While transformation is something a bit different. Transformation is your whole life. Transformation is internal change. It's a change of motivation, a change of attitudes 
that then issues out into external change. C.S. Lewis gets at this in Mere Christianity. He says, For mere improvement is not redemption. The redemption always improves people, even here and now, and will in the end improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. God became a man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better by like turning a horse into a, but much more like turning a horse into a winged creature. Of course, once it has got its wings, it will soar over fences, which could never have been jumped and thus beat the natural horse at its own game. End quote. And brother and sister, I really hope you want more than improvement from your life. I really hope that you're hungry for transformation. And we see one of these dramatic stories of transformation, one even better than one we see in Goodwill Hunting in our text today from Luke chapter 8, starting verse 26. Then they, the disciples and Jesus, sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the temples had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. The word of the Lord. Amen. You know, when you see this man, you begin to think he's an animal, don't you? I mean, he's really wild. The reason he's wild is that he's demon-possessed. Demon-possessed. How do you react to that term? Just me saying it. Demon-possessed. Well, maybe you're intrigued by it. If so, I bet you I could get you hooked on some Chris Angel and some David Blaine. I might even be able to get you hooked on a paranormal reality TV series. 
if you're intrigued by this term. But others of us, we respond to the term demon-possessed with just the opposite. We think anything that cannot be seen and cannot be heard is just a figment of the imagination. It's fiction. It's fable. It's people just trying to make a buck on their naive followers. But what if both of these views are aired? C.S. Lewis again. I can't help it this morning, but I got two. Actually, three today. C.S. Lewis, in his prologue to the Screwtape Letter, says this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and an unhealthy interest in them. The devils themselves are equally pleased by both errors. They hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. See, those who... Like magicians, love our text. <laughs> but if you're a materialist who's skeptical of the world of the unseen, let me just suggest to you that this passage is still for you. See, part of the reason our text is so intense that this man has thousands of demons possessing him. But the same dynamics that are true of this guy are true of all of us who are being influenced by evil to any degree, even in covert and subtle ways. See, look at the man. We, we can learn a lot about how evil works by looking at this man. The first thing we see is that he's isolated. See, it, it says in our text that he once was a part of the city. That's where he's from. But now he's alone. The demons have driven him into the tombs. He's close to society here, but he's still alone. And there are times that the demons drive him even farther from human society. And our text says, drive him all the way out into the desert. And brother and sister, when you're isolated, Satan is winning. Proverbs 18.1 says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desires and breaks out against all sound judgment. So, brother and sister, beware of being a loner. Beware of being private. Beware of doing your own thing. Because Satan might just be having his way with you. The second thing you see is that he's naked. Now, as far as I know, I don't think anybody in our church has been arrested for indecent exposure. But that doesn't mean that this doesn't have any import for us. I mean, think about it. The demoniac here is comfortable with being indecent. He has no shame. And often we think of shame as a negative thing, and often it is. But some amount of shame is needed to function in our broken world. But what evil does is that evil doesn't view possible shame as a threat. What evil does is that it doesn't allow for shame. When you don't allow for shame, it, it allows you to violate other people and just do what you want to do. He's naked. He's also out of control. You see him being out of control in a whole variety of ways. The first one is, with his strength, he's so out of control that he's not even able to be bound. He's so out of control that he's violent towards himself and violent towards others. 
You see it in him being crying out day and night. See, this is what evil does. Evil has this compulsory element about it where it acts without any premeditation. When evil is taking place, there's little cognition or choice going on. Evil just springing forth in one's actions from the human heart that's being affected by Satan. Now, even though the demon-possessed man here is aware of being possessed, he's powerless to resist the influence of the demons that live inside him. Have you ever felt this way about your life? Out of control. You've tried to break free from destructive sin patterns. Maybe it's overeating or undereating or pornography or substance abuse or shopping, whatever it is. You just know it's destructive to you and maybe even to others, but you just can't stop. If so, Satan is at work. Now hear me, I'm not saying that we're all demon-possessed here. In fact, I struggle to know exactly what the difference is between being demon-possessed and being Satan-influenced. But I do know that the evil power of demons needs to be respected and recognized by all of us. See, Ephesians 6 talks about these subtle, covert ways in which Satan is at work in our midst. Verses 11 and 12 say, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now when he writes this to the church of Ephesus, he's not just talking to demon-possessed people. He's talking to the whole church. Verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, what's going on here is that Paul's writing this in Ephesians 6, 11, and 12, right after he's addressed all kinds of normal relationships that we all find ourselves in. He's talking about relationships between husband and wife. He's talking about relationships between parents and children. He's talking about relationships between management and labor. These are the most basic of relationships. And they're the ones that Satan is working to destroy. So when you're in these kinds of relationships, you need to know there's more going on than just the parties involved. There's more than just flesh and blood. There's also this pervasive, unseen power of evil at work. Now this forces us to ask a pretty haunting question, doesn't it? Are we just walking around the world unknowingly affected, not just by our own inner darkness that arises because of our sin, but we're also being affected by this outer evil, this evil that's seeking to kill, steal, and destroy us? The answer is yes. So where does this help come from? You see it in our text, it's just Jesus. Jesus just shows up to the tombs and he commands these demons to leave and there they go, gone. They jump in a bunch of pigs and pigs jump in the lake and evil seems not to exist in the city anymore. But notice what Jesus didn't do. He didn't show up to the tombs, find the demon-possessed man and say, hey, would you put on some clothes? Hey, would you quit screaming all day and night? You're disrupting everybody. Would, would you get some friends and quit being isolated? 
Well, would you stop being so mean? You're just so mean to yourself and other people. No, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus knew that all these outward actions were merely symptoms of a much deeper problem. And the deeper problem were these demons. So that's why he just removes them. But when Jesus comes up on the tombs, can you imagine what Jesus' look was when he saw the demon-possessed man? How would you look at that guy? Especially if you knew a little bit more about him. I'd be embarrassed. I'd be embarrassed seeing a naked guy in the tombs. I'd be scared. If he's violent towards himself and others, I'd probably be shrinking back a little bit. But not Jesus. When I use my redemptive imagination and I look at what Jesus would have looked like, I think Jesus had compassion on him. And he cured his condition out of compassion, not just so that he wouldn't be afraid anymore. Brother and sister, that's the way Jesus looks at you. He looks at you with compassion. He hates how evil has ruined your life. And he wants freedom for you. He wants freedom from this dominating, destroying, distorting evil forces that are at play in you. He looks at you and he wants to increase your self-control. He wants to restore your dignity. He wants to bring transformation about in your life. But maybe you've lost hope in transformation. And maybe you need to have your imagination spurred on this morning. Well, look at this man. Verse 27, he's naked. Verse 35, he's clothed. Verse 27, he has many demons. Verse 35, the demons have left him. Verse 27, he didn't live in a house but in the tombs. Verse 39, he's restored home, returned home. Verse 27, he's isolated from his community. In verse 39, he's building a community through evangelism. Verse 28, he fell down in terror before Jesus. Verse 35, he's sitting peaceably at Jesus' feet. Verse 29, the demon had seized him and he was out of control. Verse 35, he's in his right mind. Transformation. It's remarkable. And in this example, it's pretty stark and it's sudden. For many of us, our transformation is a bit slower, isn't it? But this slower pace doesn't mean that you're just undergoing improvement as opposed to transformation. Let me pick up on the, one of the C.S. Lewis quotes that I read earlier about improvement and transformation. He says this. He said, but there may be a period while the wings are just beginning to grow. When the winged creature cannot fly. And the lumps on the shoulder, no one can tell by looking at them, are going to end up being wings. They only give off an awkward appearance. And maybe that's where you're at today. You can't quite fly yet. And you're in this strange stage of transforming from a horse to a winged creature. And now you've entered worship and you're discouraged because evil's gotten the best of you once again. 
Well, brother and sister, it's okay. Transformation is happening. Jesus is more passionate about your freedom than you are. Your wings are sprouting. You just needed some encouragement today, and that's why you're here. And the encouragement is found by looking at Jesus. Look at the demon-possessed man once more, not for his transformation, but to see Jesus. Now, I know maybe not at first he doesn't resemble Jesus, but he does. He just pause for a moment. Think about it. Jesus was isolated, wasn't he? Isolated on the cross. Where he'd been abandoned by everyone, even his own heavenly father. Look at this man. This man cries out day and night. Jesus, hanging on the cross, cries out with loud cries. This man was naked. Jesus was naked. We hung on the tree. This man lived among the tombs. Jesus was dead in a tomb. And those are the lengths Jesus went to to take care of evil once and for all. And when you see just how far Jesus went to defeat evil, you can hang in there. You can hang in there, resist evil, and you can await your final transformation. And until that day comes, you've been given a commissioning, the same commissioning that this demon-possessed man has. Do you see it? At the end of verse 39, he begs to stay with Jesus, but Jesus won't let him. <laughs> Jesus has other ideas. He wants this man to give testimony to the work that's been done in his life. In verse 39, Jesus says, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. See this man right here, he's a fresh convert. He's got no theological training. He's one hour of life into life as a clothed man. He's not had much time to catch his breath. And he's being sent into a life of ministry in the most dangerous of places for him. A place where everybody knows everything about his condition, his home. And brothers and sisters, I think God's asking the same from us. You've been given a testimony, too, of how evil used to hold some kind of hold in your life, and now it doesn't. Even if you were raised in a well-adjusted environment, even if you were raised in an environment where the Bible was important, you're, you aren't immune from evil's influence in your life. You've got a story, too. You know, in our neighborhood groups, uh, we share stories. And I usually tell part of my story. I say that I'm a recovering Pharisee. You've heard people talk about I'm a recovering alcoholic or whatever. Well, I'm a recovering Pharisee. Pharisees in the New Testament, they were Jewish religious leaders, and they were really good at being good. And they were really proud of it. Well, that's me. And it's evil. And that's what I'm trying to unlearn. And if I zoom far enough out, I can see progress of how I'm turning from a horse into a winged creature. I'm just in this awkward stage. Now, your testimony might not be like mine. Your testimony might not be like this demon-possessed man, 
But the Lord is commissioning you to declare how much he's done for you. But don't be naive. Not everyone's going to like your testimony. Did you notice what the pig herders did? Did you notice what the townspeople did in our text to Jesus? They wanted Jesus to flee town. It didn't make sense at first, does it? I mean, you, you think that they'd be thrilled to have this problem of a person taken care of. But the pigs represent something. The pigs represent their economy. They represent their wallets. The townspeople, the pigs, they were afraid that if Jesus continued to stay in their town, that he'd continue to have a negative economic impact on the region. And they didn't want to lose any more livestock. So now their fear turns into rejection. So brothers and sisters, when you start sharing your story, your story of redemption, don't be surprised if rejection is the result. Paul did say in 1 Corinthians 2, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. The other, fragrance from life to life. Brothers and sisters, my hope is that we as a church, that we are people who submit to the victory that Jesus brings over evil. My hope is that we are people that always hunger for more freedom from our bondage. My hope is that we wouldn't be afraid of the change Jesus brings to our lives when we allow him to stay around. My hope is that we share our stories of redemption. And may Jesus be kind to bring this about. Amen. Father in heaven, you are about more than improvement. And so, Lord, I pray that we would see you in the extent that you went to break the power of evil. In Christ's name, amen.